Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 242 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we speak with Heather McGowan a future of work strategist and co-author, along with Chris Shipley of The Adaptation Advantage. Let go, learn fast, and thrive in the future of work. We spoke with Heather back in episode 130 of the podcast, and we've continued to follow her work with great interest as it has evolved over the past couple of years. Jeff, what do you and Heather cover this time around? Well, as you mentioned, Salisa, Heather has a book out titled The Adaptation Advantage, and that's new since the last time we spoke. So I wanted to make sure we highlighted some of the key messages of the book and how they relate to the ongoing work that most of our listeners are engaged in. Heather has, of course, been speaking and writing for a long time about the changing nature of work, about the need for continuous learning and adaptation. But what becomes very clear in this conversation is that circumstances at the time we're publishing this episode, which is in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, are making the need for learning and adaptation even greater and more urgent. And of course, they're also increasing the need for leaders who can step up and help guide us into the future. And what reflection questions did you come up with for this episode? And as a reminder, listeners, you can find the reflection questions in the show notes available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 242. Well, first, a concept that's very important to how Heather and her co-author, Chris Shipley, approach adaptation is identity, the sense we all have of who we are and what we do. So as you're listening, give some thought to how you're helping or perhaps hindering your learners in productively managing their sense of identity and perhaps even letting go of it when necessary. And then second, towards the last third or so of the interview, Heather suggests that we may see much more of a shift towards a coaching model when it comes to learning experiences in the future. And I encourage listeners to reflect on that prediction and consider where coaching might be a good fit for the types of challenges your learners are facing. Those are great questions for listeners to take advantage of. So let's get the mental wheels turning and roll the interview with Heather McGowan. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Jeff Cobb and today I'm very happy to be talking with Heather McGowan, a future of work strategist who helps leaders prepare their people and organizations for the fourth industrial revolution. She is also the co-author, along with Chris Shipley, of The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go, Learn Fast, and Thrive in the Future of Work. Heather's been on the show before, and I'm excited to have her back to talk about the new book and about how the future of work is shaping up, particularly given current conditions. But first, Heather, 
Welcome back to the Leading Learning Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for so much for having me back. I look forward to our conversation today. Well, I was looking and it's been uh, right around two years exactly since the, the last time we spoke. So a good bit of water under the bridge since then. Uh, but a, a lot that's new in your world. I described you as a future of work strategist. Could you could you talk a little bit about you know what that is, what you actually do with, uh, with organizations and, and maybe how that has changed over the last couple of years? Yeah, so I think last time I spoke to you, um, most of my work was consulting. I did some speaking and some writing. Um, That evolved, especially in the last year or so, to being almost 90% speaking, 10% writing, maybe 80% speaking, 10% writing, 10% consulting. Um, But what I found is that organizations were just hungry for a vision of the future that wasn't the robots are coming for our jobs, and it wasn't you know, this dystopian view, but it was a view that was very human centric, optimistic, realistic and optimistic. But we have to make a tremendous shift because we're coming out of the era where we learned once in order to work. We had a fixed occupational identity. Um, A career could have spanned a lifespan uh, or could have been shorter. Our careers are now longer because our lives are longer meaning bigger leaps in human longevity. And then we've got this accelerated change cycle driven by technology and globalization, now with a new accelerant called the coronavirus, which is, you know, ramping up that velocity even more. So um, I started writing uh, about that in 2014, started speaking in 2015, and then as of uh, sometime in 2018, moved to uh, speaking all over the world, represented by speakers, agents, and and to many fine companies, and getting a lot of great insights, which led to the the book that came out April 14th. Well, and let's talk about that a little bit more, because for me, that's sort of like a a culmination, at least at this point, of uh, of the work that I've seen you do, the the writing, the speaking, the the great visuals um, that you create. So you've really focused in on this, this concept of adaptation. Um, and, and that being uh, an advantage, if not the advantage right now uh, for for all of us uh, living in the world. Um, it, talk a little bit about what, what you mean by adaptation, uh, what, what that involves, and, and, uh, and, and how that uh, gives us an advantage. Well, we're in the middle of a massive forced social experiment right now driven by this virus. So we're all suddenly in our homes, learning in our homes, working in our homes, those of us who can, uh, the World Health Organization, not the World, the uh, World Economic Forum, this morning came out and said only 29% of people can work from their homes. So we have to realize those of us who are working from home, we are in a position of uh, of privilege. But the way in which we've adapted, and you have to first understand the concept of uh, adaptation, which is different than flexibility. Mm-hmm. So flexibility or fluxing is really uh, reaching to your toolbox for a different tool, likely one you've used before to attack a process or a problem likely one you've seen before. Whereas adaptation is reaching into your toolbox, pulling out a a half-formed tool that you've got to forge the final pieces of it, create a new process, and tackle a new problem you've never seen before. So adaptation requires a lot of learning and a lot of unlearning, whereas flexibility is just pivoting between known tools and known processes for known problems. And I, I really like that you um, were sure to make that distinction uh, early in the book, too, because I think it's been very common, at least in, in, in my world, for people to talk about flexibility and flexible solutions and you know being flexible in your work. But it does go beyond that, that that learning, that that unlearning. Uh, I'd like to talk more about unlearning in a second, but 
but I was also um, uh, very interested, as I, I know a number of uh, people who have reviewed and commented on the on the book have been at the important role that identity plays in, in this. Um, you know that we all have, I, I guess, these these certain conceptions of ourselves that uh, that potentially can can get in the way uh, of being able to adapt. Can you talk a little bit more about how? the role that identity plays in, in, in how you look at adaptation? Yeah, and identity came up as a factor for me in work probably um, three or four years ago. My niece, Izzy, was four at the time. She had career day at school. She calls me up and said, the other we have career day. And I said, you're four. You seriously have career day? And she said, yeah, and I want to be a unicorn. I said, that's, that's great. She said, well, the teacher doesn't think so. She told me it wasn't realistic. So we're telling four-year-olds to pick a realistic future self rather than dream and explore and create. Um, and then I was realizing with my work with the university presidents and provosts that we're pushing so many students to pick a university major before you know they step foot on campus or now they sign into Zoom if that's going to be uh, the future for a little while anyway. And that's asking them to pick a future self in a very rigid way based upon what exists today and in often cases what existed yesterday rather than what existed today. Because um, the best studies I've seen on this uh, were the Federal Reserve Bank of New York did a study on college and university majors, and they found only 27% of people ever work in the field of their college major. And that was of the 4,000 people or whatever they surveyed. You know who those 27,000 people are? They're faculty. They're faculty that tell student or administrators because you go into a field, you love it, and that becomes your whole world. But that isn't true for all of us. Most of us never work in the field, or we take learning from our undergraduate education if we go to university, and we take that learning and we, and we port it in new days. We adapt that. It isn't a direct, yeah, I was trained to do X, so I do X. Um, and we need much more of that approach in education, in learning, and, and in socialization, because the first thing we ask each other is, what do you do? And studies out of the UK have found that it takes twice as long to recover, and studies in the US as well, takes twice as long to recover from the loss of a job than it does the loss of a primary relationship hmm. because the loss of everything you've been told you are from Izzy's age of four, you know? And um, right now we have at least 26 million Americans in the U S and I would bet a whole lot more who have lost that. Who are you? Cause hmm. they don't know how to answer that. And so in the book we get into talking about how identity is formed occupational identity, and how we can reframe it. I mean, when I talk about the book, it's not training for anything. It's really helping you shift your thinking about yourself as a worker, as a student, and as a leader. It's designed for people to read with their team. So the first section is on change and how you've already adapted in many ways. The second section is on identity and rethinking about yourself and rejiggering how you uh, prepare yourself for the world. Um, and then the third chapter is on how do you lead uh, teams on accelerated learning tours, because that's what the future of work is going to be. Learning is an integrated part of work. So in the identity piece, um, it's really about the occupational identity, but we also get into shifting societal and cultural norms that have made it hard for some people to adapt because they feel like their personal identity is under threat whether it's racial changes or changes in gender roles and gender or gender identity, religion, a lot of factors have changed around us that were norms for people that made some people comfortable, some people uncomfortable. Now some people are more comfortable making other people uncomfortable. Um, so we just need to look at some of those factors and realize to learn and adapt, you have to be comfortable being vulnerable. You have to be comfortable saying, I don't know in order to learn. 
And there's a certain confidence you have to have to be vulnerable. And that's where the identity piece really comes in. Mm. And maybe talk a little bit more about um, unlearning, because, you know, it, it seems to, if, if you have an identity in many ways is learned, um, and, and part of managing identity is, is unlearning parts of yourself as well as, you know, knowledge and, and anything else you might be bringing with you. How, how do you approach uh, unlearning um, if you're somebody who wants to, uh, to be able to adapt? But first, it's just to acknowledge that the fact that most of the skills, behaviors, biases, and habits that you have are learned and that they can be unlearned. And it can be simple things like, well, I don't do math because I was told in the second grade I wasn't good at it. Well, that's a learned deficiency in some regards because you won't try because one person once told you that you weren't good at it. Um, the reason we titled the book Let Go and Learn Fast is we want you to Think about letting go of the occupational identity traps that have been holding you you back. Um, in terms of unlearning in like really practical ways, um, in your office you may do something a certain way, and then suddenly either the process needs to change or your business model changed, and you have to do it in a new way. Well, you have to unlearn that old process. You know that kind of the 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 evil of unlearning is this is the way we've always done it, or we've tried that before and it didn't work. Those are my two favorites when I work with organizations. Okay, that may, both of those things may be true, but that doesn't mean the future a different way isn't possible. And you you referenced uh, a little while ago um, being a leader in all of this. Uh, I mean, is leadership fundamentally changing? I mean, it seems like a lot of leadership needs to be now helping people probably recognize the, the need uh, to adapt as well as helping them with that process of, of adapting. Yeah, I um, for the book, I interviewed Jim Kunz's of the Leadership Challenge extensively uh, for the leadership sections. I had done a talk at one of his leadership summits in June, I think it was. And he's he's got 30 or 40 years of research into leadership. And I think the Leadership Challenge is in its like sixth or seventh edition. It's been out for 30 years. Um, and and uh, Jim and Barry have been looking at leadership. And Jim said to me, you know, I don't know that there's something true that wasn't true back when I wrote the first version of that book. But the focus and intensity on what was important then is so much more intense now. He's like, it's like we're driving on a racetrack and suddenly we went from 50 to 80 miles an hour and everybody around us, there's more people on the racetrack. So the focus you need to have is so much more intense. And the focus is on things like, you know, how do you check in with the well-being of your team? I mean, we have a mental health crisis in this in this country, one in five or one in seven. It's something like that. People are suffering either known or unknown, diagnosed or undiagnosed, and that's number's probably even higher now. So if you have more than seven people reporting to you, someone on your team is suffering. So seeing that they're okay. Right now we've got people working from home. Um, the number of parents I'm reading about with, you know, you were just mentioning your kids with just absolute fatigue about how do I keep my kids feeling like it's okay? How do I keep them learning online while I'm trying to do my job yeah. and Maybe I'm worried about my elderly parents. It's an incredible stress load right now. So checking on well-being is really important. Uh, establishing trust, particularly as we're working in distributed teams, and trusting your team to do the work that you've agreed upon or the mission that you've agreed upon for the work that you're doing. And then establishing psychological safety, which is a, a term that Amy Edmondson, Dr. Amy Edmondson from Harvard coins, I don't know, like 20 years ago. Yeah when she was studying medical teams and found the teams that persisted through small errors so they didn't become big errors were ones that could immediately identify an error, 
do a postmortem on it, figure out what they could learn from it, and then move on. They were very agile and very much a learning organization. And um, we've got to do that now. We've got we need leaders who don't lead with impression management and pretend they know everything because none of us know everything. And there's always new skills and knowledge coming in. So you've got to defer some of your decision-making to experts that are on your team who may have knowledge you don't have and skills you don't have. So it's a different type of learning. It's, it's from moving humans from depersonalized units of productivity to inspiring human potential. And that's a very different proposition, especially with the, the onset of the virus, which is putting more stress on individuals. And, and where you mentioned uh, uh, in, in the beginning, you know, the, the fear of the robots. I mean, where, where do robots and, and machines, artificial intelligence, um, because even, even before the coronavirus came along, those were those were causing stress uh, for people. They'll continue to. Um, how do how do machines now fit into our learning our unlearning our, our adaptation? Um, well, in a few different ways. So there are, are ways in which we have been handing off tasks to machines. Like one of the things I do in, in talks, I say to people, you know, take out your mobile phone, open it up, hand it to the person next to you, pretend they wiped out your contact list and handed it back to you. How many people could you call? And everybody's usually like, well, my parents, my spouse, and my childhood home phone number. We used to be able to call, you know, if more than 10, about 10 years ago, we could call 20 or 30 people. We had that many phone numbers stored. We don't store them anymore. We've already outsourced that. So there's one simple way. Uh, when we need to go somewhere, we don't get out maps and plan routes, usually, unless you're doing a special road tip. We usually put it in our GPS. So we've outsourced certain functions, and we've adapted in certain ways. But every time we hand something off to technology, we should be reaching up or reaching over to learn a new skill. And I don't think we're doing that quite enough. So that's where technology fits into to learning and adaptation. In this particular moment, I'm actually a little surprised we're not using technology more to keep human workers safer. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. see drone delivery experiments happening, driverless cars. You know, I don't see as much of that that I expected to see. Uh, maybe five years from now, we, we would have. Um, I understand they're using a lot of artificial intelligence and a lot of computer systems to simulate uh, the flattening of the curve, viruses, variables, and what vaccines may or may not work. So we're doing using a tremendous amount of technology on the on the science side. But within organizations, we should look at technology to augment the human, not replace the human, because there's all sorts of things that, and we get into this in the book, the technology can't do. It can't decipher intent very well. You know, the simplest way to understand that is anytime you've had to call a number that tells you to push one and push four and push six and push two, and you can never really get to your intent because automated systems are not good at understanding intent the way that humans can understand each other. We're also not as, machines are not as good as make it making meaning as we are with each other. And so there's this whole role for humans that if we embrace it and we elevate uh, the human and we have a learning centric focus for it, I think we'll be in really good shape. The last couple of decades has been uh, shareholder values. I mean, stakeholder shareholder values. So we have treated humans like a cost to contain rather than asset to develop. And my hope is that this pause is a moment where we rethink that. Mm. And so, and you, you have referenced, uh, the, the, the current situation a number of times. Uh, this is one of a number of conversations that we're having in the midst of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it, is this, do you see this as an inflection point? I mean, are things going to be fundamentally different uh, after this? I think things are, were fundamentally different a week or two later. Um, mm. 
the way I was tracking it in the first 14 days, everybody who could teach online did teach online. And most schools are in some form or fashion online and with varying degrees of success, but much greater than people thought possible in, you know, December 2019. Oh, we can't teach online. And then in April 2020, schools are teaching online all over the place with varying degrees of success. But we've, we've gotten over that fear hurdle. It's not perfect. We're not going to do everything online, but we know that we can do a lot. Uh, same with distributed teams. Um, we have to think uh, differently if we're going to live in a world of continuous pandemics, which is possible, mm-hmm. about how we protect those people with high human interactions. So, you know, it was unthinkable to pay somebody at Walmart or Amazon or Target $15 an hour in December 2019. In April 2020, $19 an hour became completely reasonable and acceptable. So it's interesting how quickly our shift in what's possible changes. In in December, I might not have cared, not me, one might not have cared if my Uber driver had health insurance. In April, I want my Uber driver to have health insurance. I want my Uber driver to have sick pay too. And so we suddenly have this shift on the kind of what's important to me versus what's important to the we. And that's a way in which I think things are going to change around work. And I mean, do you think, um, how much is it going to snap back? I think is what, what people uh, uh, keep asking me, you know, Yes, we're in sort of a different normal now, but when this is all over, are we just going to revert back? I, I don't know. I think in some ways we'll work back because we're humans and we want to be with other humans. Like mm-hmm. I, I want to go to Fenway Park for a game. You know, I want to ride the subway in New York. And, you know, as, as uh, unpleasant as that may seem, the New York subway is very efficient when you want to get somewhere. I fly five or six times a, a month normally, so this is a real uh, lifestyle change for me. I'd like to see some of those things change back, but uh, you know, one of the things I've discovered is I've started doing a lot of virtual talks in addition to podcasts, so some of my uh, speaking has transitioned to virtual or new virtual opportunities have popped up, and one of the things I can do on virtual is I can pull the audience, and they can anonymously tell me what they think about either what I'm talking about or a subject I'm about to go into, and that gives me a, another insight into the audience and another way of engaging the audience, which I couldn't do when I was standing on a stage with, you know, 500 or 5,000 people in the audience. So there's some advantages to it that I think, um, you know, the planet is certainly doing a lot better without us driving and flying everywhere. So keeping that in mind, I think we might make some, you know, more mindful decisions. Uh, some things will stop, will snap back. We are a capitalist society, but I think that some of these strides have, have made us think differently about fellow fellow workers. And I saw a study uh, today or yesterday that they're seeing a brand shift in how we think about companies. If companies are not really great to their workers, we're going to be less likely to use them now. If we have no other choice, we'll use them now. But when this subsides and we have more choices, we're going to go to those companies that treated their workers right in this moment. Hmm. Yeah, I can definitely uh, – I, I can see that uh... – becoming becoming a big thing now i'm not surprised um to hear you note that you've been doing a, a good bit of, of virtual speaking uh lately uh we've we've in our world so many organizations are having to to shift their uh, whether it's their annual meeting or their seminars or just you know anything they might have been offering face to face into an online environment um and uh, there's certainly a, a strong market for for people who can do compelling uh, virtual speaking at, at this point now I, i'm wondering you know, you've talked about universities going online, um, education going on online in general. 
that's now that's been happening, but it's you know accelerating in the world of lifelong learning, in the world of continuing education, just like it is uh, everywhere else. I'm wondering for somebody who is a, a lifelong learning provider, continuing education provider, you know, when you're talking about helping people adapt, helping organizations adapt, potentially helping whole fields and industries adapt, you know, if you're in that, uh, if you're the membership organization for that industry, I mean, what, what would you advise those uh, organizations to be doing differently, or at least to be thinking about differently to, to support lifelong learning in this in this world of adaptation yeah i think we're going to see more and more of a shift towards a coaching model like the the content and the skills we we know how to deliver those we've we've got that ironed out in this grand experiment we know we can deliver that stuff online but it's how do you help someone they get stuck whether they get stuck because they hit a wall and they can't figure something out and then they get demotivated or they're just not motivated to get started um, and, and that's one of the things we really get into in the book is that if, learn, if you're going to have to learn and adapt for life, and I believe you will over what is now a career arc, which is probably at least a decade longer, how do you connect to that motivational drive that's internal, not external? And I think that's curiosity, purpose, passion. And that's um, I interviewed uh, Kate O'Keefe from Cisco's Chill Lab, and she said, you know, you got to think about yourself like a prototype in beta. And be always sort of iterating and testing on it. And that's sort of instead of telling, you know, the Izzy at the age of four, this is what you're going to be when you grow up, kind of stoke the fire. What, Izzy, what are you interested in? And then, you know, Izzy at the age of 15 or 16, what are the things you're good at? Where can you add to your arsenal of your how and continue to explore to find your why? Because you're going to have many what's and what's are just the jobs that you have, which is the application of skills and knowledge at a moment in time. So for the learning organizations out there, I think it's never going to be a better time to be in learning than the next couple of decades ahead because it was IBM's study that 120 million people worldwide need to be reskilled in the next three years. And then, you know, higher ed institutions are a blood sport for 20 million undergraduate students when they're missing the higher, you know, the bigger phone ringing off the hook. So that's a profound opportunity, but it's a matter of like meeting people where they are and helping them get a little unstuck so that they can see themselves. And I think there's much more coaching and human interaction in that. I like that. I, I, I like that you referenced Izzy again, because we, we tend to think of, you know, people's motivations and what their interests are, maybe when they're four, maybe when they're 15, but we don't recognize that when you're 45, you know, you, you still need to find those, that, that motivation, that, that interest. Um, I think it goes to your whole point about identity. Um, and, you know, we we personally need to be tapping into our sense of identity, but then uh, as as learning leaders, we need to help our learners, uh, you know, recognize and and and, and reshape uh, their identity over time. Right. And degrees, you know, I got a couple of them. I, I'm a, I was a designer for the first decade of my life, and then I got an MBA, so I was a business person. And then, you know, I had lunch with somebody and then I had a series of experiences that landed me. Speaker was nowhere on my radar, not at four, not at 40. I'm 49 now. And now it's clear to me that this is a good role for me. And maybe at 52, there'll be another one, but being open to sort of listening to what interests you, what energizes you, where are you applying your superpowers? You know, having uh, an advisory board, informal, a series of mentors, always having people check in with you, being open to feedback, 
Um, I think those things are all important. But as, as learning organizations, where can you embed that in? So you're not just selling a course or selling a training, but you're helping transformation happen at the real personal level. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I appreciated that about you when, when we first connected, uh, that, that you yourself have evolved over time and uh, you might now be creating a, a, a desire among people who realize that future of work strategist can actually be a job title now. So there, there might be <laughs> aspiring uh, future of work strategist out there, uh, even as we're speaking. And that, that actually leads me to um, where we usually start to, to, to wrap up our, our interviews. We've had a, a stock question for a while. We're probably about due to, to change it at this point to ask people about, you know, the lifelong learning experiences that have really had a, a significant impact on them since they've left any, any sort of formal schooling. We did actually ask you about that before, and we'll, and we'll certainly be sure to link back to our, our previous episode with you in the show notes to this episode. So, you know, in, in, in thinking about that, um, and, and thinking about this whole need for adaptation, I, I thought maybe a different take on that question would be, you know, what do you what do you personally find challenging about adaptation and and how are you working personally to become a, a better adapter i, I got to be i got to be brutally honest i'm not that good at adaptation i've done a lot of it but i don't know that i'm that good at it like right now um speaking in person isn't isn't possible for at least the next 3 to 6 months i'm going to guess so what do i do so i've had to start learning how to speak online, which is a new thing. It's a new tool. I mean, we've done, I've done a lot of interviews and stuff like this, so I know how to use the tool, but I don't know how to maximize my message yet. I don't know how to, you know, how many bits of content do I give? When do I put the poll in? That's what I'm sort of figuring out. My early stuff on it's been pretty good. My first couple of webinars had uh, north of 70% engagement levels and everybody stayed on, you know, through the whole thing and they get three or four times as many as they think are going to sign up. Those are all good signs, but I know I need to get better. And there's some days that I wake up and I'm like, when is this going to be over? And it's just, it's overwhelming. And, and for anybody who's going through that, you know, I, I understand it. It's happening to, to all of us um, differently, albeit very differently. I mean, we have different levels of, of privilege, but um, I don't know that I'm necessarily good at adaptation. And any time I complain about it, my co-author Chris said to me yesterday, well, what's your adaptation advantage? Because it doesn't sound like you're adapting too well. So I get checked on it all the time. But, uh, you know, that's one thing. And then one of the other things I mentioned in the in, in the book is that um, getting hard lessons can sometimes be a really huge gift. And for some people who got laid off out there, you might have been laid off from a job you hated. And you never left it on your own for one reason or the other. And it's sort of a gift that you're out now in that when you go back, you get to find your way back to a job that's more meaningful for you. I mean, I, I got fired from a job when I was 23 or 24. I was arrogant, wasn't a good fit. They should, they should have fired me. But that bad medicine was a real good reminder to me that I have to show up and deliver value every day. Um, I also mentioned in the book that um, I had a um, – colleague once who went with me on a pitch when I was working as a consultant who said, you're really smart and really interesting, all that other, you know, compliment they give you before they, they dig in with the insult. And he said, you have no idea when people are listening to you. And I just rocked me back on my heels. And every minute since then, I've thought, who am I talking to? What are they interested in? Am I talking about stuff that interests them? Because that's the whole point of a conversation. And it's guided my speaking career. So bad medicine, uh, can be good and adaptability isn't always easy. And this is really, really hard. 
Well, I, I appreciate your, your brutal honesty, uh, certainly. And, and I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's great about the adaptation advantage, and there are many things that are great about it, I certainly highly recommend the book, but, uh, but I mean, I think central to it or implicit in it is that we're all in this together. I mean, we're, we're all learning and all trying to, to figure this out. Uh, no, nobody has it perfect yet, probably never will. Um, but we need to, to keep trying to, to get better at it. And uh, the book will certainly help readers with doing that, I, I know. So, Heather, um, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to come on the podcast. Once again, we will certainly provide a link uh, to Amazon or, or you know, the, the, a good location to actually be able to purchase the book. Um, if, if listeners want to learn more about you, about your work, potentially connect with you, what's the best place or the best places for them to, to go for that? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn for sure, and I post a lot there. So if you're interested in the kinds of things I talk about, then you could find a, a whole flurry of things. Um, my speaking and writing, uh, and you can get in touch with the, the people who represent me, is at heathermcgowan.com, M-C-G-O-W-A-N. And then uh, I have a website for the Adaptation Advantage. So it gives you a little bit of information about the book um, and things we're doing. Like we have a virtual book club tomorrow afternoon. We had one last night. We're doing a series of those to try to – you know, help people during these times. Those are free uh, for people to join. And um, it also has updated where you can buy the books. We've had some supply chain challenges during the, the pandemic. So it gives you kind of an updated place from Amazon when they have it in stock to some indie bookstores are trying to help out. So Great, great. That's that's why I hesitated a bit on Amazon because I think I saw on your site that they they had sold out at, at one point. But uh, um, but we'll provide multiple links. We'll definitely link to your site. I think it's great that you're doing the the virtual book club. Certainly would in, encourage folks to check that out and definitely encourage folks if you are a LinkedIn user to father, follow Heather on LinkedIn. I do, and she's always posting extremely interesting stuff. Uh, probably one of the main people I share. Uh, certainly one of the main people I like out there when uh, when she posts things. So well, great. Well, Heather. Thanks again so much for being a guest on the Leading Learning Podcast. Thanks for so much for having me. That concludes the interview with Heather McGowan. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 242, and the show notes will include the reflection questions. How are you helping or perhaps hindering your learners in productively managing their sense of identity and perhaps even letting go of it when necessary? Where might coaching be a good fit for the types of challenges your learners are facing? When you check out the show notes, you'll also see the various options for subscribing to the podcast. If you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe. It helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That will put you in the right place. Jeff and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but even more importantly, reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leadinglearning on each of those channels. Wherever and however you do it, please do follow us and help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.